Little Britches by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1950. Chapter 22, Bad Times Were Not So Bad. Lord God, it is uh, with joy that we pause and, and talk to you throughout our day and to tell you that you are always good and always just, always right. You, Father, are patient with us. We uh, thank you for um, the uh, family that you've given us. I thank you that we have uh, people to our left and to our right to walk with us through life. And I pray that we do uh, so as, as good friends ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. We had traded what was left of our good beans for groceries at Mr. Green's store in Logantown. But there was there were a couple of sacks of our peas and all our landlord's peas and beans left in the bunkhouse. The landlord wrote us in September and wanted Father to bring his share of the good beans into Denver and as many of his peas as we could haul. After the letter came, Mother got down her Wedgwood sugar bowl and poured the money out on the kitchen table. There was only $24 and a quarter in it. Most of it was money I got working for Mr. Wellborn. Of course, we had receipts for 15 and a half tons of hay in there, too. That was how we got paid for work we did for other people in Hain. When the money was counted, Mother told Grace to take all the youngsters but me out to play and to ask Father to come in. The three of us sat around the table where the money and Mother's memo pad were laid out. She said I had earned so much of the money that I should help decide how much of it we could afford to spend and what we would buy with it. The bottom of my feet were so tender from having worn my boards all summer that I couldn't go barefoot, and my Christmas shoes were all worn out. Mother said I would have to have new ones before school started, and she thought we'd better pay $2 and get a good pair because my Christmas shoes didn't wear very well. Then she said she could can tomatoes and green peas and beans from the garden if we could afford to buy some canning jars and rubbers. After that, we started going over the list of unbleached muslin, muslin, calico, quilting cotton, and other things she had written down on her pad. Really, Father and I didn't do much of the planning. Mother would guess how much different things would cost and put down the amounts. Amounts. Then she would add them up and say, Oh my, that's a lot more than we can afford to spend. Charlie, do you think there will be a cash market for sugar beets or beans or hay this fall? Father only said, I hope so. But the panic seems to be as tight as it was in the spring. Maybe things will open up a little before cold weather. Mother would cross off some of the things on the list and change the amounts on others. Then she would sum up and say, oh my, again. At last, it got down to where it was just my shoes, some cloth for winter coats and dresses, and the canning jars. If Father could trade our two sacks of dried peas for them, and then we'd have $10 left in the sugar bowl for emergencies. We loaded the big wagon that night, and Father let me go to Denver with him in the, ne the next morning. We started way before daylight. Mother made me wear Grace's new shoes and the stockings she had knit with yarn from an old shawl. The last thing Father did before we left was to tie the feet of Brindle's calf together and lay him up on top of the load. Grace's shoes hurt my toes and the stockings made my legs prickle, so Father let me take them off till we were almost into the Capitol building. First, we went right to the Golden Eagle and got my new shoes. Then we drove by Cousin Phil's office and Father sent me up to get him. The office didn't look a, a bit the way it used to. There was nothing left in it but two chairs and a desk. The stenographer was gone, desk, typewriter, and all, and Cousin Phil looked terrible. 
He told me to stay there and look at the, news and look at the newspaper on his desk while he went down and talked to Father. He was gone a long time, and when he came back, he said I was to stay with him while Father went to do his trading. There wasn't a thing for me to do in the office and nobody to talk to. Cousin Phil just kept reading the newspaper and looking at his watch every once in a while. About noontime, he went out and brought me back a couple of donuts, but he didn't bring himself any, and he wasn't gone long enough to have eaten lunch. But he did talk a little after he came back. He told me he had a big deal all ready to go through, but the panic had knocked the bottom out of everything. Then he asked me how I'd like to have Prince to drive instead of old Fanny and said he thought a while on the ranch would be good for the little bronc. All afternoon, I watched from the window for Father to come back. But it was nearly supper time before we got, he got there. Prince was tied to the tailgate of the wagon, but Cousin Phil didn't even come to the window to look out. He just told me to run along so as not to keep Father waiting and said he'd be out to see us before too long. As soon as I climbed up on the wagon, I could see the Father had several good-sized bundles piled up in the front end and half a dozen boxes with pictures of canning jars on them. When I asked him how he got so many things with only $14 and a quarter, he kind of chuckled a little bit and pulled his leather, leather pouch out of his pocket. There was still some money in it, and from the sound of the jingle, I knew some of the pieces were as big as half dollars. Then he told me that Mother had overlooked the fact that everything was a lot cheaper since money got so scarce, but he wouldn't tell me what was in the packages. He said I'd have to wait till we all, till we could all look at them together. After that, I asked him what was the matter with Cousin Phil and why he didn't have the stenographer and her things in his office anymore. He didn't answer me for a few minutes. Then he told me we hadn't stopped to realize how well off we were to have enough to eat every day and to have a good home and clothes enough to keep us warm when there were people who were actually starving. I remembered about eating both of the donuts Cousin Phil brought back at noon and asked Father if he thought maybe he was starving. He said no, Cousin Phil would never starve but he thought the panic had clipped his wings a little bit. Father and I both were both as hungry as we could be, and just talking about having plenty, of, plenty to eat made us hungrier. When we got out by the lumber barn, we bought a custard pie and a pail of milk in the same little store where we had got them when we were first moving out to the ranch. <clears throat> While Billy and Nig were eating their oats, Father and I ate our pie and talked about the new things we had been able to get since we had been sitting there sitting a custard pie, eating a custard pie less than two years before. It seemed to us then that we were going to be rich people before very long. And the next morning, it seemed to everybody at home that we already were. School didn't start that fall till we had everything from our garden but that we hadn't peddled but put away in the cellar. We got some more canning jars and sugar from Mr. Green and trade for a pig and vegetables. Mother filled every one of them with green corn, tomatoes, peas, and green beans. Father built bins on the cellar floor, and we loaded them with carrots, table beets, and turnips. But we had put more, but we had put horse manure under the potatoes when we planted them, and they went all to tops as my cowboy friend High had said they would. It was Mother who got the idea about selling vegetables at the fort. She said that officers in the army got paid cash whether there was a panic or not, and she'd bet their wives would buy fresh vegetables. I think Father would rather have taken a beating than do it. But we went back from one back door to another all day through the officers' quarters in Fort Logan till we'd sold all the garden stuff we didn't need for ourselves. It brought in nearly $21. Denver must not have been a good place to be during the panic because Prince looked nearly as bad as Cousin Phil. He was skinny and didn't have anything like the pepper he used to have when I first saw him. 
Father started giving him two quarts of oats every morning and night. And by school time, he'd run like a rabbit again. Father let us drive him once in a while till he found out what was going on at school. But after that, we had to take Fanny. He might not have found out about it at all if I hadn't got my face skinned. Wooly Aldevote rode a horse to school that fall instead of his old spotted donkey. It wasn't much of a horse, but he had a saddle for it, and it was a good saddle. It was wide in the pommel with a short seat and double cinches. Willie said it was a breaking saddle. We put it on all the horses at school and tried to make them buck, for Prince was the only one that would. At first, he didn't buck very much harder than Willie, Willie's donkey used to, but the more we tried to ride him and the more oats he got, the harder he bucked. After a while, he didn't crow hop, but would bounce from one side to the other and turn almost end for end while he was in the air. He'd get his nose right down between his front hoofs. It got so only Willie and I could stay on him at all, and we got tumbled off plenty of times. I couldn't reach the stirrups, and I didn't dare put my feet into the stirrup straps with my shoes on for fear one of them would get sticky and drag me when I got thrown. So I always had to ride barefoot. Even at that, my foot got stuck one, after, one noon time when I went off sideways, and Prince dragged me a few feet. Miss Wheeler fixed me up all right with a little court plaster, but, of course, Grace had to tell Mother what happened. Maybe it was just as well, though, because after that, Prince bucked so crazy there was hardly a man in the neighborhood who could ride him. Right after that, I'm sorry, right after Thanksgiving, Hal came running up to the wagon road to meet us when we were coming home from school. He was just past four years old and nearly as wide as he was tall. We could hear him jabbering as he came, and he was so excited he could hardly wait for Fanny to stop before he started cl trying to climb up over the wheel of the buckboard. In between gasps, he was hollering, We've got a new horse, and she's got a colt, and she's brood, and her name is Bread. I guess we all got about as excited as Hal was, and I turned in at the gate so fast that I nearly slewed him off the seat. Father and mother were out at the corral with the new mare and colt. The mare was a nice-looking bay, a little bigger than Fanny, and as smooth as butter. The colt looked to be a yearling and was a bright sorrel. Father let me walk right up to the mare and pat her. I wanted to be gentle with her and have her like me, so I went close. So as I went close to her, I said, easy bread, easy bread. Mother heard me and said, what is that you're saying? So I told her that Hal said the mare's name, well, that was the mare's name. Mother's face looked kind of funny for a minute, and then she pulled her lip down as if she were trying not to laugh. Then she said, no, no, Hal must have been mistaken when he heard father talking to Mr. Cash about her. No, she doesn't have a name yet, but he's going to have, She's going to have another little colt pretty soon. Isn't she beautiful? She's a perfect little lady. Mother didn't know it then, but she'd named our new mare. Nobody ever called her anything but lady after that. Grace named the colt Babe. Afterwards, Father told me we, that we had bought lady and Babe with receipts for eight other tons of hay we had earned during hay time. He said I had a part interest in her, but I could never ride her hard as I did Fanny because she was a brood mare. Christmas that year was even better than the year before. Father bought a whole box of yellow bellflower apples. And we had our biggest young Tom turkey and cranberry sauce and even celery. We all got new shoes and stockings and mother had made new winter coats for Philip and me without our knowing about them. I got a set of dominoes and a two-line bit for a riding and a two-line bit for a riding bridle. Muriel's cat thought she ought to give some presents too and she must have counted noses because she had a litter of five kittens Christmas Eve. We had taken three good cuttings of alfalfa off the field we sowed our first year on the ranch 
and the stand on the new field was rank and good. Our beans had ripened before the frost came. We'd had enough water to fill the oats, and there were tons and tons of sugar beets. The only trouble was that we could sell hardly anything. Father had Mr. Lewis bring his machine and thresh our oats and beans. It took two days to thresh them, and I stayed home from school to carry water and milk and donuts around to the men. When the job was done, Father paid Mr. Lewis in oats and beans, but all the other men owed us hay. So we just changed each man's receipts to show he'd owed us a little less hay. It was fun to watch the stream of clean white beans come pouring out of the threshing machine and think and then think about all the work we had had the winter before to flail, winnow, and sort them. Our 19 pigs did far the best of all those in the neighborhood because they lived on sugar beets from the time we started thinning out the rows in the spring. And the sugar beets made the meat so much sweeter we could trade our pork in at Mr. Green's store when other people couldn't. Grace and Philip couldn't get jobs away from home like father and me, but they were the ones who really got us the groceries that winter because they thinned the beets and fattened the pigs. And it was getting the pigs fat that helped us more than anything else. Everybody had wanted some of our beets to fatten their hogs and nobody had any money. So father traded beets for all the tools and machines we needed to make us good ranchers who wouldn't have to borrow. Of course, none of the things we got he got were new, but father didn't need new things. He could fix up the old ones so they could work just as well. Our landlord came out just before Christmas and father gave him part of our share of the oats and beans for his share of the beets. Father made a deal with him for us to work out the land taxes by helping build roads too. That way we didn't have to give up so many beans. Road work started right after hay baling and I liked it best of all the work we did. The county allowed a dollar and a half a day for a man and a dollar a day for a wagon and team of horses. Lady had foaled her colt in a, a pretty sorrel filly that we named Bonnie, so she was able to work. And with the wagon and harness to, Father got in trade for beets, we had two teams to put on the road work. Father drove Lady and Fanny, and I drove Billy and Nig, and they allowed a dollar and a half a day for me, just like a man. All the land was adobe. In the summer, the roads baked as hard as brick, but when they were wet, the mud clung to wagon wheels till they were a foot thick. The only way to fix that kind of road was to spread gravel over the adobe during the winter and let it work down with the spring rains. The men who had big teams worked all the greater on the grader that cut the side ditches and rounded dirt up to form the roadbeds, but those with lighter teams hauled the gravel. Father and I hauled the gravel. There was a crew of men down on the gravel bar in Bear Creek to do the loading, and another crew did the unloading. So all Father and I had to do was drive team. The bar was on the far side of the creek from the road we were building and we had to come through the ford with the loaded wagons. Several of the men got stuck coming through the ford, and I was always afraid it would happen to me. One day, Father and I got loaded at the same time, and he was right behind me when I started through the ford. If there was ever a time I didn't want to get stuck, it was when Father was right there to see me. Before Billy and Neig had their feet in the water, I started clucking and popped them with the end of the line. When the line end hit the, his rump, Billy jumped ahead and nearly swung Nig off balance. I yelled, get up, Nig, and swung the end of the line at him. He was wearing an open bridle, and he must have seen it coming because he lunged into his collar so hard he jerked Billy back against the wagon. Then I guess I lost my head and started snapping the line and out the way a mad snake does his tongue. The wagon was right in the middle of the ford when the sand was, where the sand was deepest when Father called, stop. I didn't have to say whoa to the team. There was something in Father's voice that they understood as well as I did. He jumped off his wagon waded right into the creek and stood beside my front wheel. 
If I ever see you abuse a horse again, he said, I'll put you at a hard job and give you the same treatment. Now pass me those lines. What father said hurt me so bad, my throat felt as if I were trying to swallow a baseball. But it didn't scare me. It was his wading into the icy cold water that scared me. Whenever he got cold and wet at the same time, he always took a bad cold and would cough sometimes till there was blood on his handkerchief. I passed on the lines, but I was sure we were stuck so hard it would make another, take another team to get us out. Father drew the reins tight, so both horses were even. Then he clucked once, and the team set their shoulders and leaned in the collars. It was beautiful to watch. At first, the wagon didn't budge, but it looked as though Father were pushing on those lines instead of pulling, and it almost seemed that I could see his hand, um, see his will passing through them to the horses. The muscles bunched out on their thighs till they quivered, and the wagon inched forward. With their feet planted deep in the sand, they kept it moving, moving, until they were stretched out like show horses in a stance. Then their nigh hoof, then their two nigh hooves stepped, moved forward as if they were both, they had both lifted by the same brain. Step by slow step, the wagon moved through the deep sand and up the bank. As soon as we were on level ground, Father passed me the lines and waded back to his own team without a word. I always loved it more after he scolded me than I did at any other time. When, while Billy and Nig rested and got their wind, I watched Father come through the ford with Lady and Fanny. He had as heavy a load as I did, and my team was once and a half as big and strong as his. I couldn't see how he would ever get through the deep sand. At the brink of the far bank, he stopped them for a minute. Then he dropped the lines and said, Hup, quick and sharp. The light mares went down the bank with a rush, over the bar, through the ford, and up the bank. I watched their feet, and they were in perfect time every step of the way. I got tears in my eyes, and when Father stopped his team to rest, I wanted to go back and tell him I was sorry and would never abuse a horse again, but he waved for me to drive on. I didn't feel a bit good, and as I came up the greater, up to the greater, Fred Allen asked me what was the matter. I told him I got stuck in the creek and Father had to wade in to get me out. Fred knew about Father's cough as well as I did, and he was boss of the road gang. So when Father came up, Fred sent him right home to get on some dry clothes. When he had started, Fred yelled after him, and tell ma'am to get you a big slug of brandy. I don't know whether she did or not, but Father didn't get a cold that time. That was the best winter we ever had. New Year's Eve, Mother got out her little red book and figured up all the money we'd taken up during 1908. It was only $54.85, but there was never a time when we were hungry or when we didn't have railroad ties enough to keep our fire going. Our cellar was full of bins and jars of vegetables and barrels of pork, salt pork. Father had built a little smokehouse where we cured the hams and bacon and pork shoulders with corn cobs. So the bunkhouse rafters were hung all with all the smoked meat we could eat till summer. And the floor was piled high with sacks of oats and beans. We even had a half bushel of popcorn. It was a cold winter with only a little snow. And we didn't have much work to do except to take care of the stock and saw ties for the fire. But the evenings were the best of all. Grace and Muriel and I would do our lessons as soon as we got home from school so as to have all the evening to play. We learned two plays that winter, but Grace and I usually had an argument over which one we'd do. She liked The Merchant of Venice best because she was Portia, and I liked Julius Caesar best because I was Julius and got killed at the Capitol. Mother had to take most of the long parts like Cassius, but Father was Mark Antony, and even Hal learned lines for Metellus Simber. If we weren't doing a play, Mother had us make cross-stitch chair covers while she read to us and Father popped corn or mended a harness. 
Some evenings, Carl Henry would bring Miss Wheeler over to play whist with father and mother. Three or four times, his friend Dr. Brown came with him. Those nights, mother would let Grace and me sit up till nine o'clock, and Dr. Brown would also play casino with us. He liked it better than whist, and we liked him a lot. Uh, so many things. I love you.